Hi guys, uh, I'm Kevin. I'm the senior leader of Collective. I just want to say thank you for taking time out to check out our podcast. And uh, before we listen to this week's message, uh, I'd like you to know that Collective Conference 2019 is happening at the end of August, and we do not want you to miss this. This conference is going to be all about equipping you to restore order to the disordered spaces in our lives, beginning with the very real issue of depression and anxiety caused by our fast-paced modern living. We, we want you to go from fear to faith to creating a future for others. If you would like to check out more about our conference, uh, do check us out on our collective website at collective.my slash conference. Everybody you know is invited. Can't wait to see you and host you. So, all right, guys, take care and enjoy the podcast. John chapter 11. Today we're going to uh, listen from, uh, read from seven, uh, verse 17 to verse 35. And this is what it says, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Now when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Pretty typical of Mary, lah, huh? Always Mar- Martha is the one that's going out to do the thing first. Mary just stayed at home, all right? Even though the brother just died. I mean, I, that's another sermon, okay? Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. And so when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. Now when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then the Bible says, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. You see, the Gospel of John recounts the story of Jesus and his encounter with two sisters, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. See, earlier in the chapter, it was mentioned that um, Uh, Jesus loved the three of them. This meant that they were his closest friends. You know, I like to think that these were the ones he loved most to hang out with. You know, these were people he could let his hair down. You know, I mean, Jesus' hair was always down, you know, but this was like, you know, his hair was down, you know, all right? But he could just be himself to just chill and say whatever he wanted. I mean, he didn't have to be Jesus, you know, you get what I mean? You know, he just had to be a pastor to them, all right? So, you know, when, when they hang out for drinks at night, you know, or after a long day's work or once a week, you know, let's hang out. They're the good guys, you know, in, uh, where is that? 
Damansara. Okay, let's go to the good guys. Hang out. All right. Okay, let's go hang out for drinks. Everyone would order wine, but Jesus would only order water. You know why? Why? <laughs> ah, this one is testing you. Okay, why would he order water when everybody's ordering wine? Right, the truth of the matter, he doesn't have to order water because he can turn the water into wine. <laughs> lame joke, okay? All right. Okay, lame joke, all right? Say what? You know, somebody would ask him, so how's work? Yeah, great, great, great. You know, everywhere I go, you know, there are crowds, you know, people following me. All right? Uh, but of course, the Pharisees hate me, you know, they keep wanting to kill me. All right? But, you know, the blind, the blind, uh, the blind see, the lame walk. All right? And I keep chasing out demons, which is pretty, pretty nice. All right? Uh, oh yes, you know, uh, that day I fed 3,000 And then I fed another 5,000 again, which was pretty cool, you know So, life is pretty good, like, you know, I mean, you know Praise God, praise God, they said, you know But, oh uh, yeah, yeah, one more thing, one more thing So how, uh, how is cell group doing, you know yeah. Leaders always have to ask you, how's your cell group doing? Not bad, not bad, I have 12 disciples, you know I, I love them very much, you know But some of them really get on my nerves One of them uh, by the name of Peter, alright Peter, you know, uh, always talk a lot you know, every time I say something, right, he must say 10 times more. And, you know, I haven't finished my sentence, right? He tried to finish my sentence already. So I really cannot send him sometimes, all right? And then there's another one, all right? His name is called Thomas. Everything I say, right, he also must ask me, Shoboho, true or not, all right? Prove to me, can or not, all right? So that's Thomas. Last but not least, I also have another very problematic disciple. His name is called Judah, not Judah, lah, huh? Judas. <laughs> Just testing you, all right? He's not called Judas, all right? Every time I ask him to go, hey, can you go to that campus or not? Reach out to people, eh? All right, you know, spend our time going to someone. But he always refuses to go out. He's always counting money. Susa lah, this guy. You know, very hard lah. I cannot really understand him. All right, so these are my disciples, all right? So, they were practically like family. All right? So, John 11 tells us that Lazarus was very sick and on the verge of death. And the two sisters, Mary and Martha, quickly sent for Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. But before he could arrive, Lazarus had already died. And by the time Jesus finally came to his good friend's house, everyone was already in mourning, and Lazarus was already buried in a tomb. Now what happened next, and his response to the whole incident, is one of the most profound things that reveals who he is and what he came to do. You see, when Mary, see, not Mary, you see, when Martha meets Jesus, she immediately cries out to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, in her heart, she was feeling, you came too late, Lord. And her heart was flowing towards despair. But Jesus pushes against that flow. You see, he seems frustrated by her response and replies to her, come on, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Don't you know that with me, it's never too late. And so Jesus rebukes her for her doubt. But yet, also gives her hope. But when he sees Mary a little later, who says exactly the same thing, Lord, if you had been here, my brother will not have died. This time, his response is the, is the complete opposite. You see, he's not frustrated. He doesn't argue with her. In fact, he doesn't say anything. And so instead of pushing against the flow of her heart's sadness, he enters it. He cries with her and stands with her in her grief and sorrow. And in that sorrow, he could only say, where have you laid him? So friends, 
in these few verses, we witness so profoundly the character and identity of Christ and His wisdom in dealing with relationships. See, today I want you to imagine, all right? Imagine yourself right now as someone with divine supernatural powers, like God, like Jesus. And today you have come to earth as a human being. You see, you come to the funeral of your friend and, and you know you have the power to raise him from the dead. Just like that, you can remove everyone's sorrow and tears. What would your attitude and your emotion be like? Surely you will walk into the place with an aura of confidence and also of swagger. You would even be excited because you are about to show everyone your powers. You, got, you probably go tell people, wait till you see what I'm about to do. I am the resurrection of the life. What are you also scared about? All right, so you'll be very confident, full of swagger, all right, very excited. Jesus could have spoken and acted like this because he is God, but he didn't. Instead, he allowed himself to be sucked into Mary's sorrow and agony and just stand there weeping. Why would he be so strong one minute and so vulnerable the next? But this is not a made-up story, my friends. The Bible account shows us what Jesus is, that he is both truly God and fully human. See, he is not God disguised as a man or a man acting like God. See, in his encounter with Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. See, that's a claim of divinity. Only God can give and take life. He's not just saying, I can revive Lazarus because I have supernatural powers, because I have magic. But he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And so I am the source of power that gives everything life and keeps everything alive. You see, this wasn't the first time Jesus made such claims of his divinity. You could see it all throughout the four Gospels. See, in Luke 10, Jesus says as a matter of fact, very casually he says, I saw Satan fall like from heaven like lightning. I mean, this happened way before time and space. I mean, how could he have known? In Mark 2, he says to a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. You see, this shocked and offended people. Why? Because the only sin you can forgive is the one committed against you. Am I right or not? See, I can't forgive, for example, uh, 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 Kiwi if he did something bad to James, for example. All right? Right? Only James can forgive Kiwi. But here Jesus says he can forgive all sins. In John 5, he claimed to be equal with God and the crowd wanted to stone him. In John 8, he claimed to not only be the older brother of Abraham, even though he was born hundreds of years later, but also to be eternal and God by saying, before Abraham was born, I am. John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. Claiming himself to not only to have the truth, but, be, but to be the truth itself. You see, friends, this is one of the greatest challenges for the skeptical. See, most of us would accept and acknowledge the beauty, the power, and the uniqueness of Jesus' teaching. But they would rather portray him as an, just another wise religious teacher of the world. See, but his claims of divinity make it impossible to think and define him that way. See, the founders of every religion, every major religion in this world says this, I'm a prophet who shows you how to find God. But Jesus tells us, I'm God, come to find you. And so he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
This means that we can't look at Jesus as just another religious teacher showing us a better way or giving us wisdom or inspiration. You see, he's either a cheat, deeply delusional, means crazy, or in fact, he is truly divine. You see, friends, Jesus demands us to make a choice. So you can either denounce him for being evil or you can run away from him for being crazy. Or you can worship him for being God. What you can't do is to respond to him half-heartedly. See, we can't say to him, I think, yeah, Jesus, you are a good teacher. Or you are a good philosopher. Or your words are very helpful and inspiring. Thanks, but no thanks. If he's not who he says he is, then his thinking must be really flawed or twisted. But if he is who he claims to be, then he must be infinitely more than a great thinker or a teacher. You see, friends, Jesus is telling us, you have to deal with my claims. If I'm wrong, then I'm inferior to all the other founders of other religions. At least they did not claim to be God or were humble and wise enough to not say so. But if I'm right, then I must be who I say I am. And I'm certainly not equal to all others. Think about that. Think about that for a moment. Let me tell you a little bit more. You know, it's important to remember that of all, Je I mean, all of Jesus' first uh, followers were actually Jews, right? And the early Jews thought of God as being so high that they, re that they refused to even write or pronounce His name. You know, the best word they could use was four alphabets. Y-H-W-H Yahweh Because they, they, were, they thought of him as so high and so mighty That they, they, they didn't feel, feel that they were qualified To call him by name Alright, so Yahweh was the only thing that they could come up with Alright And so any suggestion that God would become a weak Flesh and blood human being Would be denounced completely And you can see it all throughout the Gospels This means that the idea of a God-man Would be something the Jews could not phantom or accept and the chances of him trying to convince them that he is divine and he's God was as good as zero. And so even if he tried to get them to believe, that means he would have to be a perfect human being without any of the human character flaws. Anger, pride, selfishness, impatience. And these are the things people will see if they live with you closely long enough. Correct or not? Add to that the deep cultural and theological skepticism of Judaism. And you will see that it will be impossible to convince such a large number of Jews that you are God. I mean, what kind of a life must Jesus have led to accomplish what no other person has ever done? The answer is this. is that he must have been the perfect, incomparable, beautiful human being as described in the Bible. And so with Martha, we get a glimpse of his divinity and also his power. That he is God. See, but that doesn't explain the, the completeness or the totality of who he is. See, the very next moment, he breaks down weeping under the weight of Mary's grief and in the shadow of the grave. See, you would think that if a person were really divine, he wouldn't be so exposed emotionally like this. But he is. And so here we see divinity joined to human vulnerability. His love pulls him down into weeping. 
despite his claim that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is God, he responds to Mary in this way because he's fully human as well. He is one with us. And he feels the horror and the grief of death and love lost. What we have in Jesus then is something that is pretty hard to grasp and even harder to describe. You see, he's not, he's not half human or half God. Neither is he a quarter God or three-quarter human, vice versa. See, he's not a human with a high level of holiness, like a holy man that you look for in some remote place in the Himalayas or up in the mountains or a temple. He is 100% God and 100% human. See, there is no other religion like this. None other than Christianity believes that the creator of the universe, the author of life, would become a mortal human with all its weaknesses and its limitations and feel the full horror of death and also pain and also sufferings. See, many people struggle to fully grasp that Jesus was a God-man. But this story and how he responds to these two women shows us in vivid detail a divine yet human person. And this is exactly what we need most in our lives. You see, friends, Jesus gives Martha a ministry of truth because that is what she needs most at the moment. See, he sort of grabs her by the shoulders and tells her the truth. Come on, listen, Martha. Don't be sad. Don't you know I'm here? I'm the, resur I'm the resurrection and the life. Because he is divine, he is high enough to point her to the stars. Look at the skies, Martha. Nothing is impossible with me. But with Mary, he gives her a ministry of tears because that is what she needs most at the moment. See, because of his human identity, he is low enough to step into her sorrow, completely feeling her pain and understanding her sorrow and just cry with her. You see, all of us need a ministry of truth and a ministry of tears at different times in our lives. See, sometimes we need to hear the truth from friends, from our leaders or family members to pull us out of a situation, to wake us up from our condition, to push us forward from our self-pity, from feelings of failure, from hopelessness. But other times, we really just need someone to weep with us. You see, sometimes to lay the truth on people when they are grieving is absolutely wrong. But other times, to just weep with them and not tell them the truth is also equally wrong. See, none of us have the perfect temperament, the character, the patience, or the insight to give people exactly what they need all the time. See, due to our emotions, our upbringing, our personalities, we are either too blunt or too confrontational when sympathy is needed. You know, we, sometimes we have a, a habit of saying this, you know, come on, lah, don't be so weak, can I not? Such a small problem, Ani. What's the problem with you? Right? See, I told you so. I told you right now to read, right? And you say that so long. You deserve it. Hokai. You deserve it. So that's us. We're very blunt, very, very confrontational when people are broken or grieving. And some of us are just the opposite. But Jesus is never strong when he should be tender, or tender when he should be strong. 
You see, he's a perfect and wonderful counselor. See, his divinity incarnate in the flesh. And so it is this paradox that he is both God and human that makes Jesus so beautiful. See, he's the lion and the lamb. Despite who he is, he is never proud. Despite being absolutely approachable to the weakest and the broken, he's also completely fearless before the corrupt and powerful. See, he has a tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the lack of confidence, authority yet not self-absorbed, holiness yet approachable, power yet sensitive. See, friends, Jesus is full of surprises, yet they are surprises of perfection. Amen? Come on, let's give God a big hand. Can I have the musicians to come up? One more thing. You know, there was another reason why Jesus wept. And this is the part I really love the most. You know, he knew he had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead, correct? Correct? He knew he had the power. We also know that he was God who became human. But why did he do it? Why did absolute power have to enter into our weakness? Let us look at verse 38 to 44. And it says this, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. See, it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, by this time there's a bad odour, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And so Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. See, verse 38 says that Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. See, the words deeply moved doesn't adequately describe the true essence of his emotions. See, the original Greek words yeah, for that, yeah, um, I'm not going to try to tell you what the Greek words are. First and foremost, I can't read Greek. I'm not Pastor Andrew. You know, if I try to speak Greek, you know, it will sound like I'm speaking in tongues, so I'd rather not. But the original Greek words actually convey more accurately its true meaning, which is a deep cry of anger. You see, Jesus was absolutely furious. He was roaring with rage roaring with anger. But why was he so angry? You see, he's burning with anger at man's greatest fears and nightmares. Death, evil, suffering, the loss of life, of love, and of loved ones. 
You see, evil and death are a result of sin and not God's original design. He did not make the world filled with sickness, suffering and death. But you might ask, why doesn't God just show up and stop all of this? Why doesn't He just appear on earth and end all evil? The Bible says, and if we truly reflect deeply, there's so much that is wrong of what is wrong with the world. It's because of the fallen nature of man and of the human heart. You see, we all have evil and self-centeredness deep inside of us. So much of the misery here is due to selfishness, to pride, to cruelty, to jealousy that leads to politics, backbiting, oppression, conflicts, wars, and even violence. Which means this, if Jesus Christ had come to earth with a sword of God's wrath against evil, none of us would be alive to tell about it. But Jesus, He did not come with a sword in His hands. But He came with nails in His hands. He did not come to bring judgment, but to bear judgment upon Himself. You know, in the later parts of chapter 11, when the religious teachers saw Jesus' power to resurrect Lazarus from the dead, they began to fear Him. They realized this miracle made Him a dangerous threat to their power. And they wanted to kill Him. Of course, Jesus knew all of this. He knew all of their plans. He knew all of these things that they wanted to do. But this was a dilemma He had to face. He knew that if He raised Lazarus out of the grave, He was essentially ordering, digging His own grave. If He was to save us from eternal death, He was going to have to go to the cross and bear the judgment we deserve. That's why when Jesus approached the tomb, instead of smiling and feeling so happy and confident at the prospect of displaying His power, He was shaking with anger as well as tears. He knew what it would cost Him to save us from a terrible destiny. You see, He could feel the jaws of death closing in on Him. I mean, He didn't have to do all of this, correct not? He had the power, He's God. He didn't have to do all of this. But yet knowing and experiencing all of that, He still went ahead and raised Him up with a loud voice. Lazarus, come out! thus setting into motion his own death, sealing his own fate. You know, the Jews in the last verse said this, see how he loved Lazarus. But really, we must behold and we must remember how much he loved us. He became human. He became mortal vulnerable, killable, all for the love of us. You know, friends, we can't relate to God simply as someone who is high up a building or even a mountain or even a sky. We can't just climb up a mountain like I did two months ago, a month ago. I can't just climb up Mount Fuji and expect to find God there. Or I can't just uh, take a lift up KLCC, up to the highest floor, 
to find him. I can't just take a plane, 747, 737 or whatever it is. Go up to the sky or take a spaceship, SpaceX, go up to the space to find that person. You see, he's the creator of the whole universe. The earth, the sky, time and space. And all of us. See, we can't find him just by going higher and higher in altitude. The only way we will know about God is if he comes to us, writes himself into our life, writes himself into our story and into our world. It is exactly what he has done. See, God looked at our world, the world that he made, and saw us destroying ourselves and the world by turning away from him. And it filled his heart with so much pain and sadness because he loved us. He saw us struggling to get ourselves out of the traps and the misery we created for ourselves. And so he wrote himself into our story, into our world. Jesus Christ, the God-man, born in a manger, born to die on a cross for us. Today, friends, let us behold who Jesus is, how He loves you, and how He loves me, and how He came to put the world right. Amen. Amen. Can I invite all of us to stand?